What does learning another language and living in another culture do for your humanity and creative process? Alan Poole is an Emmy, Golden Globe, DGA, and Peabody award-winning producer and director of film and television. He is executive producer and director on the Max original drama series, Tokyo Vice, written by Tony Award-winning playwright J.T. Rogers and starring Ansel Elgort as an American journalist in Japan and his police detective mentor, played by Ken Watanabe. Poole is perhaps best known for producing all five seasons of HBO's Six Feet Under and all four of Armistead Maupin's Tales of the City miniseries, as well as producing My So-Called Life, The Newsroom, Swing Town, and The Eddie, which he developed with director Damien Chazelle. His feature film producing credits include Paul Schrader's Mishima and Light of Day and Ridley Scott's Black Rain. Alan Poole, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you, Mia. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we dive into Tokyo Vice season two, which I binged up to episode five, I just want to go back and talk about what first brought you to Japan. I believe it, this began with a package received over 50 years ago. Yeah, it's, it's strange because it was one of the foundational incidents of my life and it happened, you know, chance played a large role. I often like to say I didn't choose Japan. Japan chose me. When I was uh, growing up in Philadelphia and my junior year in high school, I entered a competition to be that year's foreign exchange student for the school. It was at that point we plunged in and competed to become the foreign exchange student. And it was a program called American Field Service. And you didn't choose your destination. The idea was the service would place you with the ideal host family for you wherever in the world that was. I'm not sure how really scientific or rigorous their selection process was, but in any event, I got selected as the candidate from my high school. And about three weeks before departure, I got a packet in the mail and then opened it up. And I was, you know, in my mind going, France, please, France. And I opened it up and it said, congratulations, this is your new family. And it was the beautiful Japanese family post around a tree in the beautiful Japanese city of Nara, which is the ancient capital, it was the uh, capital of Japan before Kyoto. So that means during most of the eighth century. And I was told that one member of the family would speak English. That turned out not to be true. And after a three-day Japanese language orientation with the other five students who were going to Japan that year, I was installed in this family and they turned out to become my second family that here 50 years later, I'm still very much in touch with and very close to, and it changed the course of my life. And I think that first of all, I had grown up in a fairly neat and protected suburban bubble. So this was my first truly out of body experience in terms of being plunged into another culture. And secondly, there was just something kind of preternatural about the affinity that I seem to have had for the language and the immediate bond that I felt with the culture and with this family in particular. When I began to proceed and really take on the language, many people would remark that I must have been Japanese in a previous life because for some reason it came more easily to me than it normally does to an American. I can't really ascribe that to anything except that it was clear that this was a relationship that was going to last. Yeah, that sensitivity and immersion. And I, I don't want to fast forward right, right away to Tokyo Vice, but yeah, it, the, there's a real um, quietness and just in the whole presentation in Tokyo Vice that it, it's not the usual presentation of Japan at all. But I'm wondering, if you've spoken before about how literature has you know, set you on the pathway to becoming a filmmaker, but I'm also wondering about you've 
consistently been a cultural translator, and I'm wondering how the act of translation, those skills might prepare you for making film and television. Yes, I think that, first of all, I have to say that as an American, the fact that most Americans are not exposed to learning a second language until they're in junior high school is a great failing of our culture because being able to take on, being able to separate thought from language is before you're 10 or 11 is what really makes it possible to master a second language. And that's why, I, you know, in countries where children are routinely raised bilingually, I think there is a broader perception of humanity in some ways. But for me, having had to be a literal translator as well as a cultural interpreter for many years, since when I got out of college, I worked for years at the Japan Society in New York, and I would be both the curator of the film and theater series, and so write essays and plan retrospectives of Japanese actors, film actors and directors and theater companies. But also when those personages would arrive, I would serve as their personal translators as well. So I was dealing with both both the literal and the more broadly cultural form of interpretation. And it really, it's just, it opened up my eyes to the unique culture, the unique ways in which your culture is so affected by how you form a sentence. That things like items like grammar and syntax are actually key in helping us put our deep cultural thoughts into words. And so it's, it's kind of hard to get to the heart of the differences between Japanese culture and Western culture without at least getting someone involved in how that manifests itself linguistically. Please go into it more because it's a real reordering of our thinking. It is a reordering. I mean, I have to say when I was 17, perhaps one of the things that drew me to Japanese culture was that I, I grew up as a very, I wasn't shy. I was extroverted, but I was extremely non-confrontational. I always personally wanted to avoid awkward moments and confrontation and put a premium on consensus. And it turned out those four attributes that dovetailed very nicely with what's considered the proper etiquette in Japan. So in some ways, I think that my long association with Japan, that it actually helped reinforce some of the less confrontational qualities in my nature to an extent that might not have been entirely healthy. Maybe I should have been out there learning how to be scrappy and fight more. But as it was, it, it did give me an affinity and a way to feel close within the culture, perhaps faster than some. And this consensus style, because everyone has different approaches to directing. And I know that then, of course, you returned to Japan for the making of Mishima. I don't know what Paul Schrader's directing style is like. Well, I mean, basically, fast forward, I, you know, I was always a film and theater kid. I just was completely starstruck and only wanted to have some kind of contact with showbiz. Didn't really understand in what creative shape that would take. But I was more drawn to theater. So when I started college, I was thinking to be a drama major. And my parents, and God bless them for it, they said, the only request they made to me, they said, we don't care if you're pre-law, pre-med, or if you're thinking about career now, but we're spending a lot of money to send you to an academic institution, study something academic. You can always go to drama school afterwards. And I said, in a, being slightly rebellious, okay, then I'm going to major in Japanese language and literature. And they were like, great, fine. And so I did. And I moved to New York on graduation and began working for the Japan Society. And I had this life that by day I was an expert on Japanese cinema at contemporary theater. And by night I was still trying to be in the theater and was writing musicals with a partner. And it all came together when I got a phone call from Paul Schrader, who at that point was planning to make his film about Yukio Mishima. And we had some mutual friends who had said, well, you know, 
you have to talk to Alan. And I went to meet him and I was, of course, completely in awe because this was the man who had written Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. And we met for two hours. And at the end of the meeting, he said, look, I don't think I can make this film without you. I want you to drop what you're doing, quit your job, come to Japan with me for a year. I'll make you associate producer and we'll make the film together. And you will be my conduit to the actors. I'll explain to you what I want and you'll explain it to them. And I, you know, I said, let me think about it. And then like, I pretended to think about it. And, and, and then, yeah, I actually waited until the next day and I said, okay. And I dropped everything and I went to Japan with Paul for a year. We made the film and that's how I figured out what I wanted to be when I grew up. The first film set I walked onto was at Toho Studios, which is actually where we also shoot a lot of Tokyo Vice. And I saw how films were put together and what it just, the act of being on a set was there was something in me that said, okay, this is home. This is where you've been headed. And even so, because at the time it was difficult for foreign productions. And even so, you've encountered some difficulty with Tokyo Vice. Well, it was interesting because I was a film scholar. I had written film criticism and I had taught courses on Japanese cinema and I had programmed a lot of retrospectives on Japanese cinema, but I didn't really have any idea how films were made. And there I was thrown into the middle of a set on a film and tasked with being one of the key purveyors of communication between Paul and the Japanese crew, the Japanese cast. And so I, it was like being thrown into the deep end. So I learned about filmmaking while I was in the middle of filmmaking. And there was an extraordinary process on that film, because even though it was difficult to make films in Japan, then the difficulties in Mishima were of a very different nature because we did work. We had, aside from Paul and our cinematographer, John Bailey, and of course the composer, Philip Glass, but Phil didn't come to Japan then for the shooting. The crew was entirely Japanese and the cast was entirely Japanese. So we made the film as a Japanese film. So we didn't have the kinds of notorious location difficulties that I encountered on my next film in Japan, Black Rain. And Mishima was actually, Paul was very respectful of the Japanese way of making films because he figured he didn't have a choice. We were making a Japanese film. And so those kinds of problems didn't arise. The problems that arose on Mishima were political in nature. It was because the Mishima's widow was at that point still alive and she did not want the film to be made. And there was a constant negotiation going on between her and Toho, the studio, and Tom Luddy, who really was, took on the American producing role and Mataichiro Yamamoto, our Japanese producer, just to keep her and the right wing from shutting us down. And then you mentioned, of course, uh, Making Black Rain, which is, you know, I think that Tokyo Vice explores a lot of these themes in a much, well, you have the time and a nuanced way. Well, it's interesting, you know, if I could just say one footnote about Mishima is that to this date, the film has never been projected in Japan. It wasn't released because of these political difficulties. It wasn't released and there was kind of a, an unwritten promise made between the head of Toho and the widow that it would not be shown in Japan. And so you can get the Criterion DVD in Japan. So that's how people have discovered the film, but it's never been shown. And so Paul and I are working right now to try to see if since 2024 marks the 40th anniversary of the making of the film to see if we can actually have a Japanese premiere for the film this year. Oh, that would be beautiful. I was offered Black Rain because Sally Jaffe and Sherry Lansing were the producers of Black Rain. And of course, this was a big Paramount movie with Ridley Scott directing and Michael Douglas starring and Michael coming pretty fresh off of his Oscar 
And they called Paul and said, we're going to Japan to make a movie. What do we need to know? And he said, you only need to know one thing, hire Alan. I don't think, I think that wasn't necessarily the most accurate answer, but so I signed on and it was, you know, it was the opposite experience for me, Shiran. It was a big American studio with a lot of money coming in and trying to have their way with the Japanese. And so it was, I have great memories of Black Rain. It was during the process, it was a very difficult experience. Often that forges the deepest memories. The, the things that you look back on most fondly are the things that you struggled with when they were happening. But we were just constantly hitting the wall with the Japanese authorities, with the police, with the crew, because we wanted to impose uh, the American system onto Japanese, both urban, urban landscape and also a filmmaking culture that were not going to be swayed by having money thrown at them. And then with Tokyo Vice, it seems that the reverse of that, it's so respectful. It has that literary pacing in season two. Just tell us, for those who haven't seen season one of Tokyo Vice, just lay the groundwork for us. Season one of Tokyo Vice is based on a memoir by Jake Adelstein, who is obviously a real person who still lives in Tokyo and who went to Japan in the 90s and actually graduated from a Japanese university, became fluent and very very eloquent in not just spoken, but also written Japanese and was the first non-Japanese person ever to pass the highly competitive entrance exam for the Yomiuri Shimbun, which is the biggest of the big daily newspapers in Japan. So he did something truly unprecedented and he was put on the crime beat and worked as a crime reporter for this newspaper and he was chasing stories and publishing stories in Japanese, but still, I mean, Obviously, in order to do that, you know, that Jake had to have a certain intrepid nature. And he also kind of relished the bull in the China shop aspect of his job. And so by coming in contact with, and I think we show this pretty well on the show, the kind of weird intersected relationships between journalism and the police and the world of organized crime, the Yakuza. It meant that for many Japanese journalists, their hands were tied often. There were many reasons why they couldn't break stories about the Yakuza that might put the newspaper or themselves or their families or other relationships of theirs or relationships with sources into danger. And, and Jake was not being beholden to Japanese society as a whole, was able to break some of those strictures. So Jake broke a story about a very notorious, one of the most powerful Yakuza Oyabuns or bosses. And his breaking of that story made him very famous, put his life in danger and became the basis for his memoir, Tokyo Vice, which was published in 2009. The adaptation, I wasn't involved with the story back then, but the adaptation work started almost immediately because our executive producer, John Lesher, got the rights to the book and began working to make it into a feature. But J.T. Rogers, and this kind of goes back to your earlier comment, J.T. Rogers came on as the writer and J.T. is not normally the person you would go to for a reporter crime saga. J.T. is an incredibly brilliant playwright. He won the Tony Award for Oslo. He's written some very, both historically ambitious and detailed and very intellectually deep discourses about political events. And so this kind of a genre thriller was not what you would normally think of for him, but there was never anybody but JT involved because JT and the real Jake Adelstein actually went to high school together in Columbia, Missouri. And so 
JT was literally there at the genesis of Jake saying as a kind of somebody who didn't really fit in Missouri saying, okay, I'm going to go to Japan and make a new person out of myself. So he, he's had a ringside seat with the story since they were both teens. And so what that meant though, to bring JT in and eventually the show morphed into an episodic television series. And that was when fifth season, our studio asked me to come in both because of my long episodic experience and my long Japan experience, but always we want to be, the show wants to be pulse pounding when it needs to be. The show wants to have lots of surprises and thrills and some violence and a lot of sort of rack up the body count along the way. But the truth is the show is always more interested in the characters than in the bang bang. And this is the superpower that JT brings to the show. And this is why I feel the show is different from most crime shows, or let's say, and I'm not trying to self-aggrandize, but in terms of a show dealing with crime, you know, the show has more in common with the wire than it does with most genre procedurals in that you find your way into the morality of the situations through the characters and that, and when there is violence and when there are consequences, you always feel the human cost of those consequences. And that means, you know, we take a little more time with our setup, but when we have the payoffs, hopefully it's more satisfying and a little more wrenching than it might be otherwise. Indeed, they're not, you know, comic characters, you know, constantly just moving without having a reason behind it. I didn't realize that JT had, had that long relationship with Jake. So going into that, you were brought not only, I think, because of your long experience with Japan, but also you worked on the newsroom and you worked a lot on stories that are dealing with subcultures. Yeah, and I had also just feature filmmaking and episodic television making are just, just in terms of the mechanics, they are fundamentally different creatures. And especially because episodic television, when it's constantly a three ring circus, when you're prepping some episodes while you're shooting other episodes, while you're editing and in post-production on other episodes, it's kind of a 3D jigsaw puzzle. And until you've done it a couple of times, it's hard to understand where your thoughts need to be at any given moment. And since uh, JT was relatively the relative newcomer to screenwriting and had never been involved in a television show and, and also didn't have the background in Japan, I was able, let's say our skill sets complemented each other in a very fortuitous way. So you're also directing, and you know, I think it's a bit mysterious for a lot of people executive producing because it means different things depending on the projects. The great thing about producer credits, or maybe the not great thing about producer credits is that you can't tell from the credit what anybody did. It's you need footnotes, you need additional information or understand, but in the world of television, executive producer is the top credit. But for instance, on Tokyo Vice, we have quite a number of executive producers. And some of those people are the people who actually work every day to produce the show. And some of those people are people who perhaps were involved with the project at an earlier stage and got their names grandfathered in, but weren't in active production on the series itself. It's, so it's without a scorecard, it's very hard to know. But in general, in, in television, executive producer is the top credit. And that can mean the head writers, or it can mean the person like myself, who we now call like producing director, meaning somebody who directs the show and also produces. So is instrumental in helping set the style of the show and supervising the other directors. Television having historically been a, more of a writer's medium than a director's medium, the position I have used to be referred to as a non-writing producer. We were defined in the negative, but fortunately with the ascent of television directors and with television having become more, and for lack of a better word, cinematic, 
and with the actual size and scope and artistry of filmmaking between television and film having gotten much closer to each other till they're sometimes interchangeable. The director's status in television has risen, but still, if you want to make the single biggest distinction between film and television is that in television, the balance shifts towards the writer and in film, the balance shifts towards the director. And so you're a driving force behind it. So you're talking about setting the visual style and whether that's charting a course, whether, you know, the depictions of violence or some of these quieter tableaus, just describe that process. So in the beginning, there is always the script and JT would work with a relatively small team of writers, most of whom never came to set because the set was in Japan. And then once you have a script, then I come in and have input on the script from the point of view of one, how are we going to make this in 13 days? Because that was our generally shot 13 days per episode and make sure that we give life to the best parts of the episode in the best way. So sometimes if there's, for instance, if there is uh, a sequence in a script that is going to take up a huge amount of labor and time and be very labor intensive, but isn't intrinsic to the impact of the episode, I would question that because in television, you're always dealing with a world of finite resources. And so the way to make the best possible episode is direct the most resources towards the things that will matter most and will make it to the final cut and will have the most impact on the viewers. Yeah, I'd love to talk about some of the big themes of it. You know, in the ways that women find and navigate power, you see through Rachel Keller as Samantha Porter or Rinko Kikuchi as Emmy. I think that from JT's point of view, he loves all of these characters and that even our, well, our biggest villain, I would say we, is the person, this Tozawa, we love to hate, but even a character like Ishida, who is the head of a crime family and who has been responsible for untold deaths of people. We always want to get them and see what worries them, what concerns them and see to, to what extent we can generate empathy on the part of the viewer. And I think that for JT and for us as filmmakers, it's always about putting the character in the context of what they're up against. And then, and this is the way season one was structured, but even more so in season two, and then putting each of our main characters in a situation in which they face both an existential crisis, meaning I could get killed for this, or on a lesser level, I could get fired for this. And then also a moral crisis where, especially in season two, every one of our lead characters has to make a questionable moral choice has to do something that they themselves know is wrong, but in the service of accomplishing a goal that they hope has a larger purpose to it. And so everybody goes a little bit to the dark side. Everybody, even Katagiri, Ken Watanabe's character, our, our most morally upstanding character in season one, is put into a situation later in the season in which he has to make some morally questionable choices. And so those choices that all of our characters make are the engines that drive the plot. So they make exciting or dangerous or suspenseful things happen. But even when that's happening, you're always aware of the moral consequences for the character in question. And that's what makes the moments powerful. And that's where we, in terms of the writing, in terms of the shooting, my work, and also the other director's work, it's always focused on that. You know, you do in television, 
at the beginning of the prep of every episode, you do something called the tone meeting, which is the director and JT and myself, if I'm not being the director, sit down and you go through the script page by page, line by line. And the reason for that is not to talk about production considerations, not to talk about locations, not to talk about casting, but rather to talk about the subtext of every scene. Like what is the hidden meaning? What is the nuance that absolutely must be delivered in order for the scene to earn its place in the episode? And if the director knows that going in to prep and that sensibility informs their choice of location, of casting, of set dressing and of shooting, ultimately, that's how you're able to create a hold that can elevate the script to a place where it feels like you're really caught up in something complicated. Yeah, you definitely have a, a lot of nuance there. And it's not really evident at first, you know, what's going on, but there's a lot of intergenerational dialogue that we don't often see. I know you'd worked on, of course, the Tales of the City series, and so you have a lot of ex experience, you know, bringing those kind of uh, stories to light. But we mentioned Ken Watton's character and, and between him and Ansel Elgort, and there's a lot of this kind of exchanges. And of course, from America, the conversations between one generation and the next are, are quite different than they are in Japan. One of the things I think, I hope that comes through clearly in the show is that the ways in which people talk to each other in Japan are somewhat different. The kinds of conversations that you have are in some ways fundamentally different from the way it would be, say, in the States. And it's tricky to do that when you're switching back and forth between English and Japanese. But I think there is, in Japan, everyone, if you're having a conversation with somebody, you know always where you are in that conversation with regard to rank or what, what the Japanese called joge kanke, which means the relationship between upper and lower. And so, because you know, if the person you're talking to is your superior or if they're below you, because it affects the language you choose, it affects the verb endings that you use. And so I think it comes through in the show, even when you're an American watching, or you're an English speaker watching the show in Japanese is that there's a tremendous amount of consciousness of the relationship between the two speakers that actually impacts both the dialogue itself and how the dialogue is delivered. There's no such thing as not being conscious of where you stand in relation to your partner and not having it be mutually acknowledged in a Japanese conversation. And so we've tried to reflect that. And of course we have Ansel, we have the Jake character as the person who is often willing to transgress in that area. And there are actually, I mean, Jake speaks beautiful Japanese and Ansel speaks beautiful Japanese, but there are actually some scenes in which uh, he speaks to other characters with a little bit less formality in his Japanese than he should. And it's reflective of his natural insouciance. And again, I think it, I don't know that comes through literally for the Western viewer, but I think you feel it. I think there's some kind of osmosis that happens where you understand what's going on in the nature of the conversation that's happening. Yes. And there's on so many levels, things are just a little different. I want to go into how, you know, contrasting with, say, your work on the newsroom and journalism in Japan, you know, what are some of those conventions? And even the way it's portrayed, it's very different. Japanese journalism and American journalism are completely different animals because America, you know, we, although there are ways in which sometimes journalists can be constrained as there were, you know, some difficult situations that Will McAvoy got into on the newsroom as Aaron Sorkin wrote him. But in general, aggression is considered a positive trait for a journalist. 
here. And aggression will make problems to you as a journalist in Japan. So well, there's a voracious tabloid press in Japan that does traffic completely in scandal and rumor and sometimes unfounded scandal and makes life hell, especially for celebrities. When you're talking about the more mainstream press, like the Meijo Shimbun, the fictitious newspaper in Tokyo Vice, everybody's playing by rules and codes of behavior. And I think, you know, I think we see that Jake bump up against that, but we also see Emmy as someone who has aspirations and has a very strong sense of wanting to address some of the moral inequities in contemporary Japan, particularly with regard to how society treats women, particularly with regard to women who are not on the most righteous path. And she is continually thwarted in that, like the scene in season one, when Emmy goes out, she finally gets a date to go out drinking with some cops. And all the cops want to do is talk about her as a girl. And one of the cops is trying to seal her under the table. And she's meeting them because she wants to get attention about these unsolved murders of women. And the murders that were, say, reported as uh, strangling in the press, even though it's clear from the pictures that the victim was beaten to death and she's not getting any traction with it. This is her quest. And she is constantly bumping up against the power structure. So I think that's a very accurate representation of the strictures of establishment journalism in Japan. And speaking of other conventions, of course, you've portrayed LGBTQ experiences in Tales of the City and Six Feet Under. And now in Tokyo Vice, your depictions of homosexuality is different. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm a gay man and I was fortunate to be able to be out in Hollywood in the 90s and be able to work early on in my career on some of the sort of seminal LGBT presenting shows. Partly it's having been in the right place at the right time, but I was, you know, to be able to work on the Tales of the City series with Armistead Maupin and then to be able to do Six Feet Under with Alan Ball, which I think made great strides in the depiction of Keith and David as a couple. When we were moving past all images of gay people on TV, queer people must be unrelentingly positive into we have our flaws too. And we can be presented as people who are just as fucked up as the straight people around us. And so it's, I feel like I've been very fortunate to be able to do that. When it comes to Tokyo Vice, I did push hard for there to be a queer storyline because especially in that time in the late nineties in Japan, there was a huge thriving gay subculture. And I know from the time I was there as a student, I was, I sort of came out in Japan when I was my junior year in college there. And so like the first real gay underground I dove into was the Japanese gay underground. So I know it well, and I really wanted to, since we were trying to show all the different subcultures of life in Tokyo in the late nineties, I really wanted that included. And so we laid the groundwork in season one, where we showed that the character of Trendy, one of, one of Jake's buddies at the paper, where we saw him like having a kind of a secret lover's quarrel in the back of an alley and that's as far as we got in season one, but it's season two, we're able to pick up that thread and we're actually able to, it's not in the first two episodes of the drop, but in episode three, slight spoiler, you'll begin to, you'll see the beginnings of there being a romantic interest or trendy. And it was very important to, to show that because at that time, late nineties, where many Americans were very comfortable being out of the closet in their work lives, as well as in their social lives. 
that was just not a thing in Japan yet. It just wasn't on the table to come out because even if you were, your sexual orientation was considered irrelevant to your obligations to society. So even if you were gay and even if your wife knew you were gay and tacitly approved of your having relationships on the side, your primary obligation to Japanese society was to get married and bear children. And that was sort of an extension of the morality where, I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent, but Japan is a first world country. Japan feels very Western in many ways, but one of the major underpinnings that you have to be reminded of that makes the culture different is it is not a Christian country. It is not a country that emerged from the Judeo-Christian tradition. So the sort of the biblical sense of right and wrong, you know, capital R, capital W that we have in Western cultures doesn't really apply in Japan. It, there's a much more of a kind of moral relativism at work. And so that's why monogamy per se has never had the sacred value attributed to it that it has for, you know, millennia in, in the West. And so since generally accepted that men have mistresses. I mean, it's not condoned, it's not approved, but it's just, everybody knows that it happens. And uh, or it, that kind of thinking applies to if you're gay, well, so what if you're gay, you still have to have a family. Like, so what if you have three mistresses, you're still, your main obligation is to your wife and your children. And so in some ways that can be paradoxically freeing, but it also meant that being publicly gay was something that took a long, long time in Japan because it wasn't considered, people didn't consider it their own personal moral imperative. They just wanted to be able to live their personal life and be free, but you're not supposed to be sharing your personal life with the society in any event. Yes. And I like the compassion, which you also portray with the hostess bars, but it's very, very compassionate and you get to understand their life. This is, I mean, I think that there are certain subcultures in the show that we're trying to get deep into and illuminate them for the Western viewer and also to some extent, even to the Japanese viewer. But because we do that with journalism, as we said, we do it with the police, we do it with organized crime. But when it comes to the Mizu Shobai, it's sort of the fourth quadrant of our four main subcultures in Tokyo Vice, is the Mizu Shobai, which literally means water business but is the term that is used to describe the nightlife, the bars, the restaurants, the hostess clubs, everything that happens after dark. And the term itself has a certain connotation of unseemliness, that things there are not necessarily proper. And so in the world of the hostess bars, of course, on the one level, it's explaining to Westerners that these women are not prostitutes. These women do not put out or money, that they are part of a very coded and rule-laden system in which they are expected to be delightful and to entertain clients and for which they get paid very, very handsomely, but they do have to abide by very firm rules that are laid down by the mamasan of the establishment. Even for the Japanese to show someone like Samantha, who you'll see, and you saw it in episode two, who has her own club this season and who's trying to create a club that is as successful and strict as any hostess club, but who is also going out of her way to make sure that her hostesses feel they are in a safe and protected environment. And that is something that I think doesn't really get portrayed very often in either American or Japanese visual media. 
And even beside that, we have the sidebar culture of the host clubs, which I don't think have ever been in a, certainly not in an American narrative fiction piece. There's been some documentaries, but most Americans don't know about that, that there is the converse of the hostess clubs are clubs that women go to, to be entertained by young single men. And that's the, the subplot we had in season one with Paulina and Akira, because that is, it's like. There are certain illusions you can make about, you can compare hostess clubs to certain institutions in the States and kind of understand basically what's going on, that what's going on in a host club is so far from anything that would ever exist in the States that it really is a, a kind of a little bit of a through the looking glass subculture. And another revelation, of course, is the character Sato, who has really come into his own in season two. You know, when you're working on a television series, one of the great joys, and you have to allow it to happen, is that the show can change organically as you're shooting it because the, your characters are hopefully coming alive and the actors who are portraying them are artists who are practicing their craft. And that brings something that you often can't anticipate in the script stage or even in the production stage. And so being able to watch what's happening on set and take that feedback and see if something has changed organically and then feed it back into the rest of the season is one of the great things that television can do. And the best example of that in our first season was with Sato because Sho Kasamatsu who plays Sato, Sato was always meant to be the morally conflicted Yakuza. That was kind of his peg. But when we started working with Sho and saw just how sensitive a soul he was and how he could be able just with a look to portray what it means like to be trapped in a world that you're not sure you belong in, but all other avenues have been closed off to you, made us want to write him further into that predicament. And so I think that was a case in which show's performance it definitely influenced the development of the character. And so coming into season two and being able to write a storyline for Sato now fully knowing the actor who's going to portray him, we were able to go to really interesting places. I mean, it's, it gets this season, possibly the most dramatic arc in the season is for Sato. And he is forced into some really difficult moral compromises and having to deal with his brother, as you see in episode two, who's come and is, is trying to find a home in the gang, which is the one thing that Sato wants to fight against. So he's a joy to have in the series, the character, is one that I think people really gravitated to. I mean, another thing that took us by surprise was at the end of season one, we had Sato be stabbed by, you know, one of his associates who he had beat the shit out of earlier in the season. And we, it was one of the many cliffhangers that we planned for the end of the first season. We weren't prepared for how deeply people were affected. I mean, when that finale aired, we were hit by a wave of, oh no, you can't have possibly killed him. And I mean, of course we were never going to kill off such an interesting character, but it was really interesting going into season two about how we were going to tease the fact that he was still alive because we needed to show trailers and promotional materials. We needed to include Sato on the poster. And so we had to find, we picked a date where we dropped a trailer that teased the fact that didn't really say if he was going to fully recover, but at least that he was alive. So people would know that they were going to come back in and, and have Sato in the series. 
Yes, and maybe similar to the way you navigate those deaths in Tokyo Vice, where the crime drama becomes a catalyst for examining subcultures, corruption, and the moral complexities of the criminal underworld and journalism in Japanese society, you were also an executive producer on the groundbreaking show Six Feet Under, which centered around a family who ran a funeral home in Los Angeles, where each episode began with a death and became a kind of perfect lens to examine personal relationships and American society. So, you know, just tell us how you came to be involved in Six Feet Under. Six Feet Under was, I was there for all five seasons from the pilot till the finale. And it was definitely the happiest experience I've ever had working in television. And it was also everything on that show came together so magically that I didn't even understand how rare it was until I started working on other series and realized that it doesn't always fall together like that. Six Feet Under was a show. Alan Ball had written American Beauty for which he would go on and, and win the Oscar. He had grown up in TV. We, we came up as a playwright in New York, and then he had written on a number of sitcoms and had even created a sitcom. But he wanted to get out of sitcom world. And so he just went away and wrote American Beauty. And when he wrote American Beauty, his agent, a brilliant agent named Andrew Canava, recognized immediately that this was a very special piece of material and didn't want it to be developed by a studio. And so he said, I'm going to assign this script to seven producers who have deals at the seven studios and say, you can have it for this studio. And I don't want a studio to see it without it being under the protection of a producer. And that way we'll protect the sanctity of the material. And I was one of those seven. So that's how I got to meet Alan Ball. The studio I was working with at the time did not buy American Beauty. But when Alan met with HBO and they said, we want you to do a series. And he said, I don't know what kind of series would I do? I've always just written like sitcoms. And Carolyn Strauss, who at that time was the head of programming at HBO, said, I don't know, I've always wanted to do a show about a family that runs a funeral home. And Alan said, oh, that's interesting. And he had been very affected not too long before by the untimely death of a sister. And so he tapped into that. He went home to visit his mom in Georgia and he sat down and hammered out the pilot for Six Feet Under and he sent it back to HBO and said, is this kind of what you had in mind? And they said, when do we start? It was like the fastest pickup of a pilot ever. And so because I had met with Alan and he knew I had a background in television, he called me and he said, do you want to do this? And so I just came on board. I produced the pilot. I became a director on Six Feet Under, started directing in the second season and was there through the finale. And we had the same group of writers essentially for all five seasons. And so it really was the entire show was touched with a kind of magic that as I said, I didn't appreciate until after. HBO were incredibly kind and supportive and really let us do what we wanted to do. And Alan and I were always in lockstep. We were able to hire a lot of great independent film directors who had never worked in television, who have gone on to have great careers like Jeremy Pedeswa and Dan Minnick. And the show, I think because it all came from Alan's singular vision and because that vision was protected by the network. He was able to go wherever his imagination wanted to take him and we were there to support it. And I think that's a lot of what has made the show timeless. And I know it's on Netflix now here and an entire new generation of people are discovering the show. And I'm delightfully surprised to hear from young people how well it holds up. Oh, it definitely does. And I believe you are nominated for an Emmy for Nobody Sleeps, which again, yes. is completely surprising, transformative episode about love and friendship. 
That episode, Nobody Sleeps, was amazing because, and it was during the third season, it was amazing because one, it allowed us to incorporate opera into an episode of television. And the opera came in very much as an integral part of the episode because it was the funeral for a man who had always loved opera and his surviving male partner wanted to do a tribute for him that was operatic in nature. So I got to go to town with Suzuki Angerslev, our production designer, and design this great real opera set in the middle of the funeral home. I got to deal with the real same-sex grief in terms of the death of the couple and in terms of their friends and Dennis Christopher giving a brilliant performance as the bereaved and how that impacted David watching this display of same-sex love. I got to work very closely with Kathy Bates, who came in the role of Bettina and was so brilliant and has become a lifelong friend. It was very much a, a transformative episode for me personally. And also I was very pleased at the, at the response that it received. Oh, I think it was one of the most moving episodes in the series. And I had never seen that, that grief and that love portrayed that way and the way that it culminated. And that was Rick Cleveland. I just want to think Rick Cleveland who wrote that show was a remarkably imaginative writer and what he brought to it as well. I didn't realize that it was all the same writer's rooms because this switching up, it changes the tone when you're working in different projects. And, and another, you know, the series we've mentioned a little bit, the Tales of the City series that you worked on. How many of these series? The first one was done for PBS and it was a record-breaking success for PBS. We got the highest ratings in the major urban markets when we premiered on PBS in 1994 of any show except perhaps upstairs, downstairs. And then the right wing came after us and we were, this was during the period when there were all these fights over public funding of art that was considered obscene. And they came after us and PBS was very intimidated because there was a cadre of congressional Republicans who were going to try to stop their funding. And so PBS dropped the ball, it chickened out. The Corporation for Public Broadcasting that funds PBS had a new head and, and they chickened out on doing the next book in the series because Armistead had written a series of six books at that time. And we were saved by Showtime, a very brave young executive there named Pancho Mansfield under Jerry Offsay came in and said, well, Showtime's going to do it. And we were able to do the second and third books in the series in 1997 and 2000, I think. In Showtime, we had to do it for less money. We had to shoot it in Canada. There were a lot of compromises we had to make, but we got them done. And then flash forward to 2018, and we had the idea to reboot it and reboot it in a way that would bring it up to the contemporary, to the current generation and see, like, go kind of beyond where the books ended and really open up a dialogue with young LGBTQ people of today, including people who are non-binary and trans, and just see all the different shapes that, that queer life has taken in the United States since Armistead had written the series. And we chopped it around and we had actually numerous places interested, but we ended up at Netflix because this was during the heyday of Netflix. And we had a brilliant showrunner named Lauren Morelli came on. And uh, although, no, actually the later three books had been published, but rather than hew to them, we kind of created our own story, borrowing some elements and using the characters that we love so much and created our own story to carry it forward. And so that was an entirely new enterprise. 
And, but of course, because we had Laura Lenny and because we had Olympia Dukakis, we were able to carry it on in, in the style and in the tone of the original series from the 1990s. Yeah, it's so fascinating to look back at what the reaction was in 1993. I mean, you already had a backlash to the series. Can you imagine what the right-wing reaction back then would have been had they seen the 2019 version? If you look at the original series, the 1993 series now, it feels uh, quaint and folksy and would probably get a PG rating. It's just, so when you look at what a political firestorm happened, what a in 1994 with that, it is, well, first of all, you see how ludicrous it was, but secondly, it's a great yardstick of how far we've come in terms of queer representation in media over the course of less than 20 years. That things that were shocking then and caused us to be denounced on the floor of the House of Representatives and caused bomb threats to happen at the Oklahoma State Legislature in 1994 would be seen as kind of almost after-school specialists today. I mean, we still had the first big same-sex kiss in that series, but now you see same-sex kisses in commercials, I think. I've always been intrigued by the mystique of a film set, and I finally got the chance to see it for myself when I got accepted into Northwestern's media satellite campus in Qatar that specializes in film and journalism. It hasn't even been the end of my second semester, and I've already experienced the very tiring but unreal and honestly quite magical feeling of going on student film sets as well as film sets organized by the Film Institute in Qatar where I volunteer at. What most people don't know though is that I originally thought of studying literature. In fact, it's quite interesting because similar to Alan Poole, I was fascinated by the field of comparative literature and actually wrote my end of high school thesis on Japanese literature. I started studying Japanese when I was in fourth grade because I grew to love the culture ever since a summer camp in Karusawa. Despite this, languages didn't come natural to me, so I decided to take a break from Japanese during the seventh grade. It wasn't until my last two years of high school that I challenged myself by picking up Japanese again, as well as studying a new language, Russian. I realized how important languages are. Like Poe said, languages offer a broader perception of humanity. And I think that's largely why Tokyo Vice has been praised by many for its cultural authenticity, rather than feeling like it was made with a Western gaze in mind. The film is shot entirely in Japan, the ratio between Japanese and English is balanced, and Japanese customs and etiquettes are respected in conversations. I think this is largely because of Pooh's diverse background, his knowledge and fondness for the Japanese culture that ensured this show's authenticity. There are debates as to whether a film degree is needed to break into the entertainment industry. Personally, I'm a huge advocate for a liberal arts education, where even film majors like myself can take electives in other fields. And the reason for this really comes into mind when I think of Pooh's journey with an education beyond the confines of traditional film studies. I believe it's only by embracing a broad spectrum of knowledge, learning from literature, culture, theater, and more that aspiring filmmakers can truly hone their storytelling skills. Now back to the interview. And you've also dealt with these non-traditional relationships and experiences in Swingtown as well. I'm very happy you brought up Swingtown because Swingtown is one of my favorite things I've ever done. And every now and then there's a little piece about revisiting it, but it really didn't get the audience or the attention that I think that it deserved in its time. Swingtown 
I developed with Mike Kelly, great writer, loosely, very loosely, I'll say, based on his teenage years when he was growing up in the 70s in Chicago and experienced firsthand the swinging parents phenomenon. And Mike, Mike's gay, I'm gay, but this was really a, more about the heterosexual sexual revolution. But when we envisioned it and when Mike originally wrote the pilot, it was much more sexually explicit because this was already, we were into 2007 and there was already much more freedom, especially if you were on premium cable. So it was an R-rated show that was intended for Showtime. But Showtime in their production calendar didn't have the money to make it quite yet. And they said, you know, if you wait, we'll make the pilot. And Nina Tassler, kind of a brilliant television pioneer, who at that time was the head of programming at CBS, came in and said, I want to make this for the network. And we were like, you can't make this for the network. She said, no, I want to make this for CBS. We were like, this is not a show for CBS audiences. CBS won't allow it to happen. She said, I will make it happen. And we thought about it and we thought ultimately, isn't it the greater creative challenge to be able to make this show without showing what happens when the two couples go into the bedroom and close the door at the end of the pilot, instead of going in there with them, but making sure the audience understands exactly what is taking place. And so we took that challenge on. There were, I remember there was a very famous or famous in our minds <laughs> meeting with Nina where we said, okay, here's our three non-negotiable demands. If you want to put this show on a broadcast network and on CBS to boot, we, we want to make sure that our hero couple does have to sleep with their neighbors by the end of the pilot. Number two, the heroine, the character played by Molly Parker has to take a quaalude at the party that leads to her swinging for the first time, because we knew that might be a sticking point. And the third is that <clears throat> their daughter who was portrayed as being 16 years old, goes out hanging out with a boyfriend and they smoke a joint. And I said, we have to show the 16 year old daughter smoking pot. And those were all things that were actually for network television at that time, still kind of on the edge. And Nina said, I promise you, you can do that. And we said, okay, we'll do this show for you. And we did. And all those moments are in the pilot. And it was, it was an incredible experience because we were constantly having to real adult themes and adult sexual themes but in a way that an American audience could see. And as a result, always, I mean, network audiences are still bigger than cable audiences. So we were able to put that material in front of more people by toning it down to the network level. The sad thing about Town, because I think it's a great show, is that there was a writer strike that messed up the programming schedules. And so it was supposed to be on in the spring and it got pushed to the summer. As a result, and it didn't really work as a summer series. It was not possible to get the kind of traction with audiences during summer season. And so the show only had one season. Yes. Well, it's the whole, the, the beautiful look of it, the tone, it sets us back in that time. And it's so interesting about these creative restrictions that I think is also something that you could bring forward to, to Tokyo Vice you know, working within these codified manners and, and having to navigate these different cultural spaces. I do want to discuss the newsroom, of course. I don't know what the experience is like, the pacing of it, the Aaron Sorkin's dialogue. We did three seasons and, and I directed the finale. I was there from the pilot until the very end. It was the prospect of working with Aaron was daunting because he's such a legendary figure and had, you know, 
on the West Wing, which, you know, when we were doing Six Feet Under, we lost the best drama series Emmy to the West Wing three years in a row. But Aaron was incredibly welcoming and gracious and basically said, I'm going to write it. And when Aaron writes something, the words must be said properly and letter perfectly. And even the punctuation must be performed properly because he basically is writing music. And as certainly in terms of the language, as the director, you are conducting, you're not there to do improvise things or try to do line changes or tell the actress to say what feels good. You are there, they are performing the score and you are there to conduct it. But in terms of how we were going to present the newsroom, the West Wing had such a patented style that was really perfected by Tommy Schlamme of those long walk and talks. We're walking, we're talking, the steady cam is leading us and following us. And I had to get away from that because that was the West Wing style. And so working together with the director of the pilot, Greg Matola, we pioneered a system where instead we built this huge set and the set functioned like a TV studio. If you put a satellite dish on the roof of that soundstage, you could have actually run a TV show. It had, this, the, the set was built up two meters off the ground because there were hundreds of miles of wiring underneath the set. Remember, this is 2011, so it was, it was pre-total digitization. And so everything was connected and all the monitors were actually live. And so we set up a system where it was lit. So anything could be shot from any angle. And we would set up three cameras on big zoom lenses on tracks and like in a loose triangle shape, and then just let the actors do what they wanted. Let the actors play the scene as their characters would without having to establish blocking and the cameras would just follow them. And the camera operators would under the guidance of the director of photography would zoom in and out and try and find the moments, capture the moments, follow the characters where they were going and find where the drama was. And so I think we were able to give it a, the sense of what it means to run a live newscast. We were able to make that come alive in terms of the kind of the frenzied energy with which that happens. I think we were able to really translate it into television in a way that hadn't been done before. Yes. And then the complex choreography of that, I cannot even imagine. And going then into the editing room, are you also involved in the editing? Yeah, I am. I mean, picture editing and of course, all the sound work, sound mixing, composing, finding, source music. That's one of my very favorite things. And it is truly, I like to say this, it might be a, a slight stretch of the truth, but basically when you finish shooting an episode of television, you have a huge pile of footage. I mean, it used to be literally a pile of film. Now it's a pile of digits, but we have a huge pile of footage and out of that footage, you can make a great episode or you can make a terrible episode, depending on how you edit and everything you do from the time you finish shooting. And your job is to make the great episode. And of course, some shows become great episodes more easily than some other shows, but but the ways in which you can actually rewrite a show during editing and post-production is to me, one of the most magical things about working in film. What are your inspirations then through music? Because it's all about rhythm and pacing. For me and for my most formative TV experience, having been six feet under, um, I tend to want to take a rather conservative approach to score in that if a scene works brilliantly without music, why do you need music? And the score especially is usually there to provide an element that 
you're not getting fully from the dry footage. And that was always our philosophy on Six Feet Under was if the theme works just as well without music, we don't need music. And that just runs a little counter to what was and kind of still is the prevailing philosophy on television, which is that everything needs music. Like if people won't know what to feel if you don't score it, which I think is, an, is a really very insulting underestimation of the intelligence of the audience. And so there's always pressure to put more music in. And, and our feeling is, no, if we don't need it, we don't need it. Now that changes, like when we get to Tokyo Vice, because of the genre elements of the show, there are, you know, if you have an action sequence, you need music. If you have a, a really tense, suspenseful moment, it probably needs music. So we have brilliant composers, Danny Bensi and Sandra Urians, who are really there to help sculpt and shape the drama. But the same way, even though I think Tokyo Vice has more minutes of score per episode than anything I've ever worked on, when we get to the final mix, which is the, that's the real final trial for every episode of television is when you do the playback of the mix, the sound mix, because you've already, the picture's been locked before, you've done all of the re-recording of dialogue, you've done all the color correction, you put in the VFX, and then you sit there on a sound stage and you watch it played back. And that's when, for the first time, you know what you have as an episode of television. And with myself and JT, one of, I think, the things that we do in playback that is most important to the show is we take music out. Because when you're watching, like individually, you'll say, yeah, this scene needs music, this scene needs music. When you're watching it, if you suddenly feel that you're just being bombarded by music all the time, it takes you away from your intimacy with the characters. And so we'll, every time we watch, now we'll go through and we'll say, okay, this scene, it works better without the music. This scene works better. This scene, it's just the music is like gilding lily or so we go through and we take cues out. And I think that always makes the episode stronger. You want it to be effective when it happens. And if it's there all the time, it just goes to a different part of your brain where it becomes a, another assumed element and you want music to be able to surprise you. Yeah, and I'm wondering how you um, cultivate your intuitive intelligence because so much of this is thinking on your feet and, you know, finding the energy when it's happening and, you know, being adaptable and particularly going to other cultures. You know what? I think that it, for anybody who considers themselves an artist working in the medium, it's you have to be grounded. You have to have some understanding of your own personal aesthetic, your closer to a hired gun sometimes than to the, you know, auteur. And so you're there to serve perhaps the aesthetic of the showrunner or, of you know, the story elements of the series or visual elements that have already been established for two seasons. But even so, if you're not grounded in your own aesthetic in terms of what's good, what's bad, what do you aspire to? What do you not aspire to? What do you think is cheap? What do you think is priceless? It's very hard to make things work because you have to trust your instincts. And so you have to have spent, I think you have to have spent enough time in the trenches owning those instincts in order that you can just say, no, I just have a feeling. I feel this way. And you can respond based on your gut feelings because you know that they huge as some kind of coherent aesthetic. And, you know, in my case, I had, when I was young, I just, I had a, a series of mentors who I kind of was a willing polite to who shaped my aesthetic. And it's because of the towering strength of those people that I said, this is someone you have to kind of, you know, just go and 
sublimate your own desires and learn from. And that's kind of where my gut came from. I mean, in my case, it was when I was trying to work in theater, I had Stephen Sondheim was a close friend and advisor for the period when I was trying to work in theater. And he, you know, really changed how I think about art. And then before I went to do Mishima, I spent three years working with Robert Wilson, the great international stage director, who was a complete genius and I adore him. And he just being an apprentice to him and being one of his many producers working on his big international projects was a hugely uh, formative and, and nurturing experience. And then finally Schrader, because Schrader just sort of said, here, you're going to work in movies, come with me. And, and everything I learned about filmmaking, I learned at his side. So I feel like I'm always telling young people, I know you want to make your own films and I know you think, you know, everything. And that's one way to do it is to take an iPhone and just make a terrible first feature and then learn as you go. But I'm such a, I'm such a believer in mentorship in when you have the time and when you're young, find people that you admire and put yourselves in their orbit and just absorb and it will serve you so well later in life. And now those instincts that you've built up and you've been guided along the way by your mentors, the industry is changing in terms of the AI revolution and kind of imagination is being outsourced. I wonder what your reflections are on that creating in the AI age. I have to say, you know, I'm, I've been working for many years. And so I'm very glad that AI is coming in this relatively late stage in my career because they don't know quite what to make of it. I just last night, I had some friends over to watch the first two episodes of the season on TV. And afterwards we were talking to one of my friends, he works in digital tech that he understands AI far greater than I will ever do. But he just showed it the latest iteration of chat GPT. If you have the 4.0, you know, paywall version. And he asked a question about the history of Tokyo Vice to his chat GPT. I want you to tell me about the factual background of Tokyo Vice and, and how did Jake Adelson come to write the book, but I want you to tell it to me as if you are a drag queen and you go beep, 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 like five seconds. And what came out was a very scholarly treatise about how Jake came to Japan and how Jake wrote the book and all the problems that Jake faced uncovering this story. But it was being told like, and honey, I got to tell you what happened next. He didn't just, he didn't just sip the tea. He spilled the tea all over the table. And it was like, mind you, it wasn't a very good facsimile of a drag queen, but the fact that my iPhone was talking to me that way while delivering all these facts that had been gathered in, you know, less than 10 seconds. I was like, okay, we're really in for it because there's a whole, there are whole professions that are involved in finding information that are just going to go away. And so I think we're just beginning to realize chat GPT came on the market less than a year and a half ago and look at how far it has evolved since then. And that's, you know, less than 18 months. So when you think about two, three years down the line, I can't say. Are human beings going to still be writing things? Yes. But are human beings going to be using AI in order to get first drafts of things or in order to come up with ideas for things? Yes, absolutely. The entire creative media landscape is about to be drastically transformed. And I can't say if it's for better or worse since I'm old school, I, I'm going to Say that I have a hunch it'll be for worse in terms of quality entertainment, but I don't know that. 
Yeah, I think as long as the final editing and interpretation is done by humans, because I think that we need the space, the air that you get in Tokyo Vice. You're talking about silences and being able to interpret things. And that's one thing that I notice with AI is it's just too quick for our brain. It can be, but you say, I mean, there come a time and I'm not trying to play devil's advocate because I'm very flattered by what you say. And, you know, it's how we apply our trade is by applying those skills. But there will come a time when AI will have consumed and devoured all the works of all the great filmmakers. And you'll be able to say, I want you to cut this scene as if it was in an Antonioni film, or I want you to cut this scene as if it was in a Sam Peckinpah film. And it will do the work of the edit. So sure, finishing touches. Will probably always be human, but I still think the amount of creative work that's going to be able to be offloaded to AI is something that we don't fully comprehend yet. Yeah, well, we'll have to wait and see. I think that you've given us a lot to think about as you think about the future and you've discussed education and your mentors and the importance of the arts. What would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I think it's important to remember that all Great work comes from the need to say something. And so this is the challenge for young artists and also maybe one of the essential elements that can never be completely taken over by AI is that there has to be something that you feel has not been said, that you feel an urgent need to say that in fact you can't not say it. And that is what gives birth to unique expression, which is where all of our visual arts and performance arts and creative arts come from. Well, thank you, Alan Poole, for sharing your urgency, for inviting us into your imaginative world and your nuanced and compassionate stories, which immerse us in other cultures, inviting transnational and intergenerational understanding. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you so much, Mia. It's been a pleasure talking with you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producers on this episode were Sophie Garnier and, and Nadia Lam. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Katie Foster. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.